Welcome to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. Today's guest, Pastor Mireya Martinez, is an ordained elder in the UMC, a person living with type 2 diabetes, and a self-proclaimed hope junkie. Love that. It is her mission to be the first in her family to intentionally conquer diabetes and to write her own story. She is known for her can-do attitude and the very reason she's my guest today. All right. Welcome to the show. Yay. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. Let's start with where are you calling in from? I am actually calling in from the little bitty grand metropolis of Patterson, Texas. So I am west of Houston, far enough into the country to know I'm in the country and close enough to the city to not feel like I'm completely away from civilization. We have 472 people in our little town. So it is a, it is a good place to be. That is a small town. How many stop lights do you have? We have a blinking light. <laughs> And it's a three-way intersection, oh not gosh. even a four-way intersection. I live in Oklahoma, so I've driven through small towns. I mean, let's, and so I know exactly what that so looks you like. understand, yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So I brought you on as a guest today because I saw you, for lack of a better term, in my words, dominate the stage during the Crushing the Burden of Diabetes on Patients, a panel that was hosted by South by Southwest this year. And- there were four panelists and you just kept turning your mic on and what you had to say. <laughs> and that's, that is a total, I mean, like, again, the reason why you're here, well, you had you. something to say and your voice was, I'm going to say, well, received with the audience. Let's talk about, thank what, you so much. Do you have diabetes? And if so, what kind? Yeah. So I am a type two diabetic. And so I, um, basically always knew diabetes would probably be in the cards for me. So I come from a family of diabetics. I come from the perfect gene pool to have ended up with diabetes. Both of my parents have since passed from complications of the yeah. illness, uh, but both of them were diabetic type one, I believe, because they were both insulin dependent. I don't recall them actually taking other medications for their diabetes. They were strictly insulin dependent, but multiple aunts and uncles, multiple grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I knew that eventually it may happen. So I was diagnosed as a pre-diabetic when I was 13. Oh, wow. And then I was officially diagnosed about 10 years later. So when I was 23, 24, so it's been about 20 years now. Okay, um, so, I was okay. finally diagnosed. With your pre-diagnosis at age 13, what did you think? I mean, did, what were your thoughts? Well, here's the thing. First of all, I thought it was unfair. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was unhappy. I mean, what 13 year old, you know, wants to be abnormal, but I was really cranky about it for a while because my parents and my doctors, you know, I had a, a really a delightful pediatrician that really wanted to 
get it under control and help me stave it off as long yeah. as I could. And so I was very grateful for my, even then I was grateful mm-hmm. for my pediatrician. I ended up going to several like introductions to diabetes classes. I remember going to an endocrinologist and going to a dietitian mm-hmm. and all of that. And it was all good and wonderful. And then it all just kind of fell flat because my parents weren't making the changes necessary for us as a family unit. Right. right? So they would harp at me about, you need to be eating a salad. But did I ever see my parents eating a salad? Like no harm <laughs> against them. It just kind of, that's just kind of how it was. And so a large part of my story is that when I finally was of age to really take control, well, then I could, and I did, mm. you know. Well, and you said, you mentioned the fact that you knew that this might be on the table at some point. Let's talk about your family heritage. Yeah. So I am Mexican-American, proud Mexican-American. I'm actually fifth generation on both sides of my family, Mexican-American. My parents very strongly valued our culture and our heritage. Mm. And even though I'm five generations out, like my family still holds to some very traditional Mexican values. Okay. We can still see remnants of that. It's actually very prevalent in my family. And so I tell people that the greatest gift my parents gave me was that they actually being in the United States, fourth generation themselves did not speak to me in English until I was four. I didn't let anyone speak to me in English until I was four because they wanted me to have that foundation and that culture. And they knew that going through the school system, I would be raised fully American, Mm -hmm. right? Going through the American school system or the United States school system, but I wanted to make sure that I was bilingual. And so it's a, it's a huge gift and definitely an identity piece. I'm Mexican American. I'm both. And I'm not really either or. And we're going to get into some cultural things here in a second, but I want to read something that from the American Diabetes Association, because this says a lot, and we're going to talk about healthcare disparities and some other things as well. According to the ADA, 11.3% of U.S. adults in 2019 had diabetes, but the numbers were higher for the Hispanic community, which fell at 11.8, the Black community at 12.1%, and the Native American community at 145 that was a few years ago. Now we know yeah. those numbers are really ramping up and those percentages are as well. So let's talk about cultural things. A, because I know a different, well, I'm not going to go into that, how to word this. Some communities see it as a curse. This is something that, you know, a past life or things like that. So in your culture, is it, you've done something wrong? Is it just, you know, let's, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And I think it just depends on who you talk to, honestly, and just kind of their own stories and their own communities that they have been raised in. I mean, in, in my family, right, I can only speak to my own experience, really. In my family, diabetes, I mean, it is what it is. If you're in our family, you're likely to have diabetes. Right. And it just kind of is. Now, there is definitely that thought. That thought is prevalent in many communities where, yeah, if you have any kind of illness, it is because you have committed some kind of great sin or somebody in your, one of your ancestors did. And this is like a generational thing that's coming down to curse you or whatever. And I really try to push back when people come at me with that kind of rhetoric. Not, I mean, it's just harmful rhetoric. 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is that this is life and life isn't perfect. And we all have something that we have to deal with. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's not necessarily anything that you or one of your loved ones did. It just kind of is. Yeah. And there are things that we can do to make it better. There are things that we can do to lift the burden, right? So the South by Southwest title was crushing, right? So there are things that we can do to mitigate that and stop that and alleviate that. But is it something that I caused or brought on to myself? No. And I find that that's actually one of the, you know, greatest misconceptions about type two diabetes in particular Yeah, is that, oh, I can't tell you how many times, I mean, people just say some ridiculous things. <laughs> Right. Let's get, like, let's get into that. Oh, such and such, you know, such and such tried this kind of diet. You just need to eat better. Or you just need to yeah. more, or, you know, have you tried such and such and have yeah. you tried to eliminate your, I'm like, look, I have tried all the things and there has certainly been times in my life when I've able, cause I also use insulin and I use insulin and oral medication. And so mm -hmm. it's just one of those things, like, certainly there are times when I can back off. And there have been times when my doctors have taken me completely off of insulin and my A1C immediately started to skyrocket. Yeah. Right. So like I have done all the things and I think I said at the South by Southwest panel, mm -hmm. you know, I had one doctor who was just absolutely convinced that I was bringing this on myself, that I wasn't exercising enough. I wasn't eating right. I mean, at the time I was eating 12, like 11 to 1200 calories a day. And I was exercising an hour and a half every day. And so I was like, you have my food yeah. journal. I have written down every ice cream that I have eaten, yeah. and cookies that I've eaten, and all of the great healthy stuff. And I've written down when I've been with my trainer and all of this. And like, I am doing all the things and I'm not willing to go lower on my calories because then you're going to push me into starvation mode. Yeah, and then that's, that's just going to cause all kinds of other issues. And so I fired him that day. <laughs> like, yes to that. I just went and found another doctor, right? Sometimes you just have to advocate for yourself, right? And so, yes. yeah, so I went and found another medical team and I've been with my current team now for about six years. Okay, so, I want to go back. So right? pre-diagnosis sure. at 13, 10 years later, you're 23-ish and you get yes. the diagnosis. So I understand from this interview that you did get pretty good education pre-diabetes at a young age. I did. Yeah. So at 23 with the diagnosis, do you feel like you received proper education and do you continue to do so? Get that. When I was 23, no. And again, like one of the things that I always tell people is like, find yourself a medical team and find people who know how to ask the right question. Yeah. And like, if you're not getting what you actually need, and they're not asking the right questions, then you may not know those questions yourself. Yeah. But once you hear them, it's like, oh, like a light bulb going off. Right. right? Like this is, oh, this <clears throat> is the missing piece. This is what I needed. And so, yeah. So initially, no, as an adult, I don't think I got the support I need. I mean, I was told, here's, we're putting you on insulin because we've got to get this under control. You need to eat better, go exercise. And that was basically it. Right. Mm. And so for a while, I mean, I did pretty well on my own, having had some experience with my parents, right. Having journeyed with my dad through his illness, you know, he started making some changes and it was too late, Yeah, but he'd been struggling with diabetes at that point, probably for 40 years or so. 
And so I started to make the changes that I knew how to make on my own. I yeah. started walking. I started doing what I could, but I really wasn't in a position at the time and didn't really have, I mean, we talk about disparities, right? I mm. was still in college. I had a part-time job. I had crummy insurance. Yeah. And so I was doing what I could. So initially, I don't think I had the support that I needed. I want to talk a little bit about, so, and I think this is the big shift in how we're talking about people living with diabetes as, mm -hmm. a, as a whole. And there's a couple of questions with this. So you are an insulin dependent type two person living with diabetes. So oral and insulin injections. So let's talk about, if you don't mind sharing, what tools do you use that through medication and CGM or insulin pump? Yeah. What sure. do you prefer? Yeah. We have found that the insulin pumps were too much for my system. Okay. Like I was bottoming out. Mm. And so for me, my personal choice after much trial and error and mm. many sleepless nights was to, to continue with just the injections. So I use insulin injections and then I use a CGM. Um, also. And so I've tried multiple brands and obviously currently I'm with Dexcom. You saw that at the South yeah. by Southwest interview. And then I actually, my primary healthcare provider is a nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what made all the difference for me yeah. 10 years ago. I've been with her about 10 years now. So when you look at my medication list with Jennifer, my primary care person, she will have like if I'm currently working with a trainer, she'll have my trainer's name. It's like <laughs> one of awesome. my medications, yeah. right? And so she always lists that I regularly go to the gym. And so all of these things are tools. So it all goes together. So having the right medication, I log in the information, like the foods that I'm eating and such, yeah. just to know and learn my own trends. And the CJM was life-changing for me in multiple mm -hmm. ways, but the biggest was that it finally gave me the full picture yeah. of what my body was doing. Cause I was one of those who was testing my sugars 10 and 12 times a day. But even with that, like you're just getting a snapshot of that yeah. very moment. Whereas with the CGM, you can get the actual graph for the yeah. entire day. And so that has been a game changer in just learning my body and how my body reacts with the medication, with stress, with, you know, food, exercise, all of it. And then, so yeah, so diet, exercise, insulin and CGM. Okay. Let me ask you, because I'm not familiar with type twos taking insulin. Do you give a bolus and a basal insulin? So long acting and before every meal? It depends. Okay. Um, so currently I am not having to use insulin with my meals okay. unless I want to splurge. Okay. And so that was part of what I kept. I feel like I sounded like a broken record at South by Southwest because we were trying to the differences in a day in the life of a diabetic between like me and Nick, who was a yeah. type diabetic. And so for me, right, if my sugar is out of range in the middle of the day, I don't necessarily have to inject yeah. myself with insulin to bring it back down. For me, actually, sometimes it is enough just to make an immediate change in what I'm eating, go drink some more water, go for a short, brief yeah. walk or whatever, I do use long acting insulin and that we have just learned. I cannot do without that. Okay. So that's the one that for sure <laughs> is kind of, we've tried twice to take me off of both insulins and it was a nightmare. And so my entire medical team and I have just kind of decided like, okay, 
Because at one point, especially with that one doctor who was doing all this crazy stuff, I was like, all right, I don't know what you're trying to do. And I don't know if I'm like part of some medical study. I don't remember signing anything. <laughs> like I didn't, re- I mean, granted, I didn't read all of the fine print with your paperwork, but like, I don't know what you're doing, but I do know this, that the longer my blood sugars are out of control, the more damage in the long term will happen to my body. Like it's not your body. Yeah. So I was well like, said. and I don't know why you're not listening when I'm saying that this current treatment that you have me on isn't working. So my medical team and I have all come to the realization that long acting insulin is just has to be, a, it's a must. For me. Well, I'm glad that we're breaking down those and I will like give my apologies now because in the first, I would say 40 episodes of the podcast, I was really hard on the type two diabetes community. And that's from my personal experience with family members. And I'm like, why? Hi. Because there is, I'm going to say it was self, they self-induced and there could be lifestyle choices they could change, but they don't. So I was hurtful and hateful towards the community. Once I got really into what diabetes looks like and the 17 different kinds there are now and the backlash with people like this and hearing the type two community, if you become insulin dependent, you failed. Well, that's horrible language. It's horrible language. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, sometimes the medical community is putting out there. Okay. Well, you obviously didn't do your homework. So here we are. And now you're going to have to give injections. Well, who the hell wants to take an injection? It's not like you're going to be like, yay, injections. That's going to make life better. Right. Right. Terrible. Yeah, so, oh. it, it is. It's harmful and it's hurtful. And there is so much shame that that comes along with that, that yes, I am grateful that we are breaking down those, what are those called preconceived notions, right? That we are breaking down some of these ideas. Sometimes it's not, it's not actually anybody's fault. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it, it kind of is what it is. And people are, you know, certainly I know people who are terrible diabetics and I will admit that there have been times in my life when I have been one of them, right? But I have not been one of them for at least I don't know, eight years now. And so just trying to like do all the things so I can live as normal and happy and healthy a life as I possibly can. And yeah, it's just not helpful when somebody says, oh, well, you know, yeah, you can exercise more and you could come off of that medicine. Mm, Thank you for your opinion. Yeah. I'll just keep on my merry way. (laughs) Well, and good for you on that. I I mean, you're, we have to be our own advocates. And I will say one of the reasons it was something that really resonated with me during your interview or your, while you were on the panel was when we were talking about a day in the life of diabetes, you mentioned being in that part of Texas and it's allergy season. So you were on a steroid pack or whatever, and the havoc that can put on your blood sugar. So the everyday person, if you're listening and you don't have diabetes, I mean, I will stay sick. I will not use a steroid pack because there's no getting blood sugars under control. And I could literally drink insulin and it wouldn't matter. I mean, it's, it's crazy what your body goes through. So I want to say thank you for sharing that and knowing your blood sugar is just going to run high for a couple of days. Right. And so in that instance, I was using the fast acting insulin with my meals. Okay. And the CGM helped, right? Because I would, all right, this is what, so I've got prednisone doing this weird thing to my sugars just because that's the nature of the medication. (laughs) And this is what I want to eat right now. Right. So counting carbs. And then it's just a guessing game at that point right? With what the steroids are actually going to do to your sugars, but then checking two hours later, right? Just glancing at the data two hours later and going, okay, well, I need an extra dose 
clearly I did that one wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so for about, you know, I was on the steroid pack for five days, but then it takes a good seven days for it to actually be fully out of your system. Yeah. I've heard different statistics. Some say seven days, some say 14. For me, it's about seven. At about the seventh day after I'm done with steroids, I'm like, oh, I'm back to normal. Praise God. <laughs> Seriously. Hey. Okay. Like everybody can just, everybody in my life can calm down and, you know, I can stop harping about how I'm miserable at the moment. But yeah, that's just, yes, a day in the life. I mean, sometimes you have to make decisions that, I mean, we knew that would intentionally make my sugars go out of control, but I have to tell you, literally my allergies were so bad. I sounded like death warmed over. And so part of the conversation was I have this panel on Monday. And so my primary care was like, I know you don't want to talk about this, but yeah, <laughs> the quickest way to do this. I recorded a podcast days after recovering from COVID and I just like told my whole, all my friends and family, I was like, listen, I'm shutting down. I will not talk to you. I've got to save what little voice I have left. So I don't sound like a whiny person and I right. still, I still have that, but it's like, I get what you're saying. And as someone who's in front of a congregation, yes, congregation. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. Your voice is, you have to have that. And one of the many articles and things I write about you is one in particular, which was somebody in your church who you could hear the alarms, right? Yes. Let's talk yes. a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so we were in, so first of all, the first thing I ever tell people when I introduce myself to them, when I'm moved to a new community, a new congregation, I let them know, right. I'm always two things. I am always a pastor and I'm always diabetic. Okay. Like my entire worldview <laughs> happens through those two lenses. Mm -hmm. I'm also definitely female and Latina, right? <laughs> so those are other lenses through which I view the world, but for sure and for certain, you know, these are two things. And so I make sure people know from the beginning that I'm diabetic, right? Yeah. And that, you know, there's memes out there about, I'm sorry for what I said when my sugar was out of range. Yeah. Like, that's actually a legit thing. So <laughs> I offend you. I try not to do that on purpose, but it may be my sugar. Ask how I'm doing. Yeah. So everybody just kind of knows. And then I keep glucose tablets and mm. juice and I prefer Skittles over the glucose. Yes, tablets. Skittles. Yes. <laughs> Skittles in the pulpit. So in my pulpit, I've got Skittles, juice, and glucose tablets. So like, I'm always ready for myself in particular, because I've right. certainly had those moments where I start to feel shaky. And yeah. I, you know, I try to make the correct decisions prior to worship starting to avoid that. But again, it's just the body is one great science experiment. So, I call yeah, myself so we were... a literally hashtag walking science experiment, like, yes. because it is so all over the place. Keep going. It's true. Yeah. So we were in the middle of the first song and yeah, the, you know, organ was playing, everybody was singing and I hear this glucose alarm go off. And, you know, I have been on forums where people are complaining about, is there any way to turn the sound down? I'm like, no, you don't actually don't want to turn down the sound. It's meant <laughs> to wake the dead. It's meant to get your attention. Like, why do you want to turn off the alarms? That's part of the gift of this technology. <laughs> right. So anyway, so I hear this blaring alarm and I actually thought it was me. Right. You know, so I took a quick glance at my phone and I was totally fine. 
And I know that this one particular church member is diabetic. I've got yeah. a few, but one in particular, I knew he was using a CGM also. And we yeah. had conversations before and he and his wife sit on the back row of the church. They have sat there forever. I've asked them what would happen if I asked them to move. They said they won't. So <laughs> anyway, it's a thing. People get territorial and they're delightful. And so I like, so I just kind of laser sharp focus looking at her and I could see that she was digging in her purse, trying mm -hmm. to find something. Mm -hmm. And when she finally looked up at me, I just did this like, yeah, up or down, like, which is it, you know, what do we need to do? And so she did a thumbs down and then she goes, I don't have anything. Yeah. Like, I've got nothing. And so I grabbed a juice box and I grabbed some candy and I took it over there. And so she treated him and by the end of worship, he was fine. And it was so funny because he was, you know, you hit those lows and like the brain fog is brutal, yeah. right? The brain fog is just absolutely brutal. And so after worship, I asked him how he was doing and he was like, oh, my sugar dropped. I said, I know. And he goes, but I think, you know, it's coming up. I'm feeling a little better. I'm going to mm -hmm. go home. It'll be fine. Well, then later that evening, he sent me a message and he said, my wife tells me you're the one who saved my life this morning. <laughs> and he goes, if I had realized it was you, when you asked me how I was doing, I would have been a little more enthusiastic. <laughs> Again, I brain like, fog. Ah. <laughs> I was like, you're delightful. I totally understand. Like, it's okay. <laughs> and so it's just one of those things. And yeah, so part of the reason that I share my story is that, you know, in so many ways, it frees others also to share their own and for people to know that, like, they're not on this journey, whatever the journey is, they're not alone in this, right? There are other people who understand. And if they don't understand, there are other people who want to understand yeah. and who are trying to understand. And so, you know, with that same particular church member, there have been times when he's been in the hospital and people come in wanting to check his sugar. And I'm like, Hey, 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 no, he's, <laughs> he's got, a, he's got a glucose monitor on yeah. him and you don't actually need to do that. And I actually had one person get testy with me um, yeah, she said, so, but I'm supposed to do this I said, well, you can just put in your chart that we are declining that. And you can put that the patient said that his blood sugar is one eleven. <laughs> you know, so it's just one of those, like, anyway, so yeah, so that was the experience and it happened more than once. It happened once. And the second time it happened, she, her wife actually walked up to the altar where I was sitting and she goes, it's happened again. And she goes, I promise I will go home and make sure I have a good stash in my purse. <laughs> I was going to say, we need to get this woman stocked. I was like, it's really okay. I mean, and they're, you know, kind of fairly new in the journey. And so these yeah. are things that you learn as you go along, right? Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. Always have sugar with you. Always have protein. Yeah. You know, I always have protein packs with me also. Well, so. and I'm so thankful that you are so upfront and honest in the very beginning mm -hmm. so that people feel comfortable coming to you because I mean, I, there's been plenty of times where I wouldn't ask for help. I always managed <sighs> it myself, but just because I didn't want to burden anybody else. And maybe they didn't know I had diabetes, but I want to end with two quick questions. Sure. And one is going to be lengthier than the other. I ask every guest now, and especially since you're living in a small community, do you have healthy food options, which means fresh 
fruits, and vegetables within a two-mile walking distance. So here's the thing. I'm in a rural community, right? right? So the, the short answer is no. Okay. So I am four miles away from the nearest grocery store. Okay. Not terrible. Not terrible. Actually, that's not true. You know what? We have a little meat market that's probably about a mile and a half down. So I do have access there if I want to pay a ridiculous amount or, <laughs> you know, that's, getting, that's another podcast yeah. <laughs> about price gouging. But so no, in that regard, okay, not really. But part of the beauty that has come for me in being in this community is that it has actually forced me to be a better planner. About oh, me. yeah. It's actually been a healthier thing for me to be here. Because again, the nearest fast food restaurant is four or five miles away. That's not terrible. But when you have to go like, I mean, it's a rural community. Yeah. It is a paved road. But I mean, you have to go like, <laughs> anyway, Out of your there's way. nothing between here and there. And then you have all these fast food restaurants or whatever. But like, it actually has been far healthier for me to be in this community. because It's forced me to plan my own meals and it's forced me to cook at home. We have one diner in my town and it has amazing, amazing home cooked food. Not much of it is very healthy, although they do have a vegetarian option <laughs> and they are delightful when you ask for a salad instead of fries. There you <laughs> so, go. Well, yeah, that's winning. And they itself. don't charge you any extra. So, <laughs> so however you want to work my answer there. I mean, it's a, yeah. Okay. Here's another question. So as a Mexican-American, mm-hmm. do you feel like, oh, what are the words? You get proper care when you walk into a medical establishment. I only say that after interviewing other guests who say that the color of their skin determined how they were going to be treated. And it breaks my heart. It is absolutely heartbreaking. And the reason I pause is because I've been on both ends of that. Okay. Right. Right. So, so I experienced that a lot. I was my mother's caregiver for 17 years. Mm. And so her, I definitely experienced that. And she, she was also on dialysis. I mean, she Mm. felt miserable most of the time towards the end of her life. And so I was often the voice for her because she wasn't feeling well or doing well. And I often felt like People look down upon her. Yeah. Yes. Because of the color of her skin. And then because she wouldn't let me answer, she would ask me to answer for her. And so I think people also just assume that she didn't speak English. Yeah. So another day, another podcast, I've got delightful (laughs) stories of the way my mother would punk people. Right. (laughs) And then also, you know, turn it back around. And at one point I remember she told somebody, she was like, of course I speak English and I've got two college degrees and I've got like... (laughs) 10 certifications for teaching. So please do not talk to me like I'm stupid. So again, you know, advocating for yourself. For me personally, yes, I have experienced some of that. Mm -hmm. But through the years, I've also learned that so much of it is how like attitude I have going in. Sure. So appointments, right? I firmly believe like we each bring energy with us and we have the power to decide what kind of energy we're going to bring into a space. And so I always try to be really friendly and, you know, ask questions and kind of set people at ease. I love to laugh. So, you know, really have some kind of goofy something or other (laughs) that I have to say, you know, like I said, at South by Southwest, it was total 
Like it was just an in the moment thing. I did not plan it at all. But when we were talking about being out of range and I was like, when I'm out of range, I feel like ripping somebody's head off. And like, <laughs> that's not a good characteristic for a pastor to have. Like, it's just not a good thing. And the laughter was glorious. Yeah. Right. So I just kind of, what you see is what you get. And so I just kind of throw things out there, but yeah, so I've learned that my attitude going in greatly affects things. And then also just how I myself approach the conversations. And, you know, when we're talking about disparities, that's my education largely plays into that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've got two college degrees. Even when I don't know what questions to ask, I know people who know the questions Mm -hmm. that I need to ask. Because certainly there are times, I mean, my PCP gets messages from me all the time in my my chart about, hey, I'm going to go to this appointment and I really don't know what to ask, but this is what I feel. Yeah. Right? And so often, you know, I'll get some suggestions or sometimes she'll shoot back at me with, just let them lead the conversation. Just tell them how you're feeling and let them So those kinds of things. Is that a good, was that kind of what you were after? <laughs> yeah. And I will say that there's so many wheels turning in this little head that I have. One last question that I want to ask you, and this is a spiritual one sure. because I've, I think I've written about it in a blog at some point at the diabetes daily grind, but my relationship with God and diabetes, that's very across the board. And so like generic, but can you speak to anything about, cause I remember as a child thinking, why would God give me diabetes? Mm-hmm. Who is this person and why do they hate me? Right. So with that, I feel like as somebody in your position and you can speak to, and I've learned this is my gift and this is my voice and I'm helping people. So I have turned the page from that eight-year-old girl, but is there anything that you can say to that? Wow. Yeah. That's a whole sermon series. <laughs> we can do another podcast because we could. Yes. I mean... <laughs> let's do it. Amber, you and I can be new besties. I love it. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to say about that. So the first thing that I tell people is that, I mean, in my faith, right? So Christian faith, Jesus is pretty clear in scripture that in this world, you're going to have troubles, but take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. And he also says in many parts in the gospels that he is with us always. Yeah. Right. And so, so again, we all have something, right. That we're going to have to go through. Then there's these amazing stories in scripture. Like I love the healing stories. Now that's getting into a whole can of worms about who gets healing, who doesn't, why, whatever it can get muddy and complicated and it's glorious and all of it. Part of it for me is all those times in scripture that Jesus says, like, this is for the glory of God. This is to help others. Mm. Like people are going to see this is going to help others. And so I have also become the person who, yeah, so this is something that I've had, I have for whatever reason, and I'm just going to make the best of it. And I'm going to go ahead and share like you, it's a gift. It's a gift to have these doors opening because of this one thing. Right. You know? And if anybody had told me even five years ago that I might find myself on a panel at South by Southwest talking about diabetes, I'd be like, mm, maybe about like technology and theology, <laughs> but right. I don't know that you would want me talking about diabetes, but it's just you know, it has become such a gift and it's opened so many doors and yeah. And then just as it relates to faith, as far as 
the Christian faith, you know, we're all about hope. Mm. And so I hang on to that, right? You did in the introduction, you talked about, I'm a hope hope junkie. junkie, yeah. Yeah, I am absolutely a hope junkie. I insist on hope, even when things are bad and things can be and get really, really bad. Like I still see glimmers and find glimmers of hope. And so that also is part of what pushes me on and pushes me to advocate for other people. And, you know, we talk about disparities. We talk about the, you know, Hispanic community and lack of resources and everything. Part of it for me is, okay, I am one of you, right? We are in this community together. And these are the questions you need to ask. And if you're not getting answers, then we need to go find another doctor. And if there's some kind of loop that we have to go through with your insurance, well, then let me help you jump through the hoops. Right. But we're going to keep at this until we find some answers. And part of that is holding on to that hope that the way it currently is, is not the way it has to be. And in the end with my faith, right, obviously I believe that eternity is going to be a glorious place and you and I will not have diabetes (laughs) and it'll be amazing. Well, thank you for sharing. And I want to do is kind of a shameless plug in this and that there's a past podcast guest And I only bring this up because you talk about having a list of questions or questioning and you have to be your own advocate is there's a book by Chad T. Lewis. It's called doing diabetes differently. I'll gladly gift you. I'll gladly gift you a copy. Thank you so much. The proceeds from the sale of this book go to the diabetes daily grind nonprofit, but, and I helped edit it with that being said, the message there is amazing. So there's five different chapters and after each chapter, He gives you a list of resources, A, so other blogs, websites, you know, and he really worked with the best of the best in every capacity. And then he gives you a list of questions to ask your medical provider. I mean, you talk about empowerment. I mean, you, yeah, because I don't know what to ask a lot of those times to the point of now I write down notes when something you have to. You do. Yeah. Because too. You, can't, you, you have your 12 minutes in there and it's not going to be like, they're going to be like, okay, here's everything you need to do. There's no way. Well, you know what? I've even taken it a step further. Before I go to any appointment, I send my questions through the portal. Yes. So yes. like they have it before I walk in and then I have it on my phone also. So I'm like, this is what we're Let's like. I'm not here. leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go through this list. Cover this list. Yeah. So, well, that's amazing. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And that those questions are so needed. Like that's what everyday people can do. Like hand off the questions. That in itself is so empowering. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you again for having such a powerful voice and especially for the type two community because they need it honestly. And it's a privilege to interview you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and I've had a great time. Let's do this again. (laughs) Yay. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diapeeps and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm-